I'd like to add my welcome to Andrews, although I'm really a guest. Um, I wasn't sufficiently qualified to get a job working with the EU, so I work down the road and just come as often as they'll invite me. Uh, one of my favourite old stories concerns a university professor, we'll say he's from New South Wales University, a student from Sydney University and a lady bishop. And they're travelling on a small plane through the country. They get a message back from the pilot who says, look, I don't know how this has happened, we've run out of uh, fuel. Um, we've got three parachutes. There's four of us. I'm a young man, it's my plane, my parachute. I have uh, a young family, I'm taking one. He puts on one of the chutes and out he goes. It's an automatic pilot. The professor stands up immediately and says, listen, he says, I'm one of the most brilliant people that's ever lived on the planet. It's critical for the future of mankind that I not be wasted. And so I'm taking one of the shoots he puts on a pack and out he goes. The lady bishop stands up, takes a deep breath and looks at the young student and says, young man, I'm old, I've had a good life, I'm ready to meet with God. You take the remaining parachute and I'll stay with the plane. The student uh, smiles humbly and says to the bishop, uh, bishop, they won't be necessary and we can both have a shoot. She says, no young man, let me explain to you. And he says, no. Bishop, let me explain to you. Remember the world's most intelligent man? He just took my bushwalking rucksack and jumped out of the plane with it. Which indicates a number of things. So you can be really, really clever in one or two areas and yet be fatally stupid in others. And no matter how sincere your mistake is, the way that reality works, sincere mistakes still have a dreadful impact on your life sometime later. And so it's very important that we get uh, the important things right, particularly at any new stage of life, like a new year or a new university, uh, to make sure that the really central things are in place. And we don't just assume because we're brilliant in this area that we understand that area. This, of course, especially to when it comes to the things of God. God is not like you. He's not like me. Whatever you tend to imagine God to be like, you'll find wonderfully he's not. His ways are not our ways. Now when you come to Jesus Christ, who we'll be looking at for the next couple of weeks here, looking at Mark's Gospel, his great message is that the Kingdom of God has come. Now that phrase mightn't mean much to us, but it meant a terrible lot to the people of Jesus' day. They were hungry for God's Kingdom to come. And part of what they understood that would happen was finally the good guys would rule. The nice folks would be in charge of the universe, which was them instead of the nasty Romans, or before them the nasty Greeks, or before them the nasty Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians. The Israel, the Jewish people, were finally thinking if the Kingdom of God might be here, the good times are about to start. So a massive crowd gathers to hear Jesus. You can see that in Mark 4. You can see you've got on the outline the, the uh, Gospel of Mark on the left in English, and on the right, a bit of an outline for those who like outlines. Now one of the interesting things that happens is you can see in verse 1, again Jesus began to teach beside the sea, very large crowd gathered about him. So he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. He was teaching them many things in parables. This great crowd has gathered, it seems to Mark's gospel, often not for the reasons Jesus would like them to be gathered. It seems often in the early part of Mark that people come hoping to be healed of the sickness, which is a legitimate hope if you find someone who can actually heal from sickness, which Jesus clearly could. So many of them have come who are sick, many of them have come who've got a family member or a friend who they've brought to be healed. Others have probably come just to watch. You know, there weren't movies in those days, so what do you do for entertainment? Well, if there's a miracle work, you might have to go and see what he's up to. And you might get lunch thrown in on the bargain with Jesus. So 
there's a whole lot of people there that we know that from early in the Gospels what Jesus wants to do is not perform miracles not even necessarily to heal people although he does it because he can't help himself but he really wants to teach people uh, not in some dry boring way but he really wants to instruct people because in the end what you believe about the world or what you believe about yourself is the most important thing about you because everything else about your actions and your hopes and your fears is shaped by what you believe at a deep level to be true. So let's imagine that you've come with this great crowd for whatever reason. Maybe you're sick, maybe you're just curious, maybe you're interested in the kingdom of God, but anyhow you're there and you've come to hear this great Jesus who you've heard about. Well, what do you hear when you come along to hear Jesus? Uh, this is what you hear. Let me read you the parable. You might like to follow it in verse 3. I just want you to work out as you hear it, what do you actually learn about God, the universe, or the big questions of life from this story? Verse 3. Listen. A farmer went out to sow. As he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. What have you just learned about God, the universe? You'd have to be a very clever person to learn much from that, wouldn't you? What is, it's, a, it's a meaningless story about some dopey farmer who throws his seed out on the good soil and the not so good soil and wow some of it grows and some of it doesn't I mean I'm not even a good gardener and I know that but this is Jesus' great story which he later on says in verse 13 is the most important story he's going to tell you and this is a seemingly meaningless little story he tells us or perhaps it's not perhaps it's not completely meaningless but the only people who get the next part the explanation are people who hang around at the end with the twelve disciples and ask the question in verse 10 when Jesus was alone those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables so there's a group of people who are not just happy enough for him see that was stupid what's you know wasted my time bringing me out here gets in the boat looks at it's going to be a great teaching moment great moment of learning some insight and I learn nothing except a silly story about some farmer but there are some people who are sufficiently fascinated by Jesus who are sufficiently determined to really learn what this guy's on about, who hang around afterwards and ask questions about these parables that Jesus keeps telling them. And Jesus says it's really only those people who've got the secret of the kingdom. It's only people who understand they've got to stick with the king and hassle the king and get a clear understanding of what the king says who really see what the kingdom is about. And then in verse 13, before he explains it, he says this, Do you not understand this parable? how then will you understand all the parables? According to Jesus, this is not a meaningless story. This is the most meaningful story of all. all. If you don't get this parable, if you don't see what Jesus is saying to us in this parable, Jesus reckons you won't really understand anything about what he's doing in this world of his and ours. It's the all-important parable. Can I make a, a suggestion? You make a little vow for yourself, perhaps, that even in some lectures, although it can be dangerous in some, uh, but certainly when it comes to this stuff at EU and the Christian stuff, make a little vow to yourself that you won't live with unanswered questions. You'll actually go and ask questions 
Uh, your faith, I would think, without doubt, will be stretched and challenged in ways at university it probably hasn't been elsewhere. And that's as it should be. But there are very fine answers. You'll often hear people speak about Christianity as if they've suddenly worked out a weak link that nobody's ever thought of. Normally, Christians have had answers to that particular question for probably 1,800 years. But I keep meeting people, some who should know better, who speak as if they've got the lay down, knock them out answer, the question that Christians will never be able to you know, get around. And yet, you may not have got around it because you haven't lived for very long and been at uni for very long, but there will be people who know quite well how to answer that question. I want to suggest be like these people. Don't just walk away and say, gee, I don't know what that was about. Hang around and ask questions. Have enough humility, enough wisdom to ask. And you'll find that the people here at you will just love nothing more than to hang around and answer questions and discuss things with you. When I spent my one year here at Sydney University, graduating with three or four degrees and a few PhDs in that one year, um, I, I spent most of it on the edge of not being Christian. I became a Christian the year before I went to uni when I was working and uh, under the influence of one particular lecturer, a lady called Barbara Thiering, who had a particular dislike for Christianity, and one philosopher I was reading called Mr Kierkegaard, I spent really the first probably two-thirds of the year in utter confusion but not willing to talk about it. It's the only time in my life I've kept a diary or a journal. Thankfully I've lost it. <laughs> because I was, I was just all angsty and I didn't feel that I could ask the questions. I didn't know anybody to ask the questions. And it was just stupid because in the end when I finally started to study for my exams and started to read some books as well as just listen to lectures and think, I discovered that so much of what that particular lecture was raising was just nonsense. That she was an absolute, you know, stood on her own. Almost all scholars didn't agree with her, yet I'd been taking it on so seriously. If I'd just gone and asked some questions and got some help instead of pretending I could do it on my own. A baby, really, a baby, wrestling with ideas from adults. So I want to encourage you to do what these guys did and go to Jesus. Well, let's look at what he says about this parable that he thinks is the all-important one. And it's at the uh, bottom left-hand side of that sheet, verse 14. Here he explains the parable. The sower sows the word. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Here are the four basic options that Jesus says when it comes to the kingdom. It starts firstly with the sower. Just one sower with one weapon, that is the seed. Seeds are amazing, don't they? I mean, you look at them, they just look grotty, as if they're nothingness. But inside is this whole mysterious power that you give it the right setting, a bit of water, a bit of dirt, and massive trees can grow out of it. The rest of Mark 4 is full of parables about seeds and trees and the seemingly miraculous power in a seed, this tiny little bit of woody looking stuff. And Jesus says the sower has this weapon and the weapon we're told is the word, the word of God. He says that the sower sows what? 
the word. When Luke tells us the story in Luke 8, he says the seed is the word of God. This is the, the universal weapon that Jesus uses. So if you want to know how is the kingdom of God going to go forward, what's the great strategy? This is the strategy in the end. The word of God. It looks so silly. It looks so weak and powerless. It looks so often old-fashioned and innocuous. And yet you'll find in the jails of the world where there are oppressive regimes, they are filled with Christian pastors and preachers. Because tyrants know the most dangerous people in their community are those who preach faithfully the word of God. Quite a number of the regimes, East European ones that came down in the last 20 years or so, came down with movements started in churches. So when the Berlin Wall came down, one of the things our media chose not to report on much was that across the main street in East Berlin was a huge banner put up by the people there saying, thank you, church. Because the great movement that brought that regime to an end started in a number of the great churches there. Exactly the same in Romania. In the end, although it's not designed primarily as a political weapon, again and again the word of God preached transforms individuals, which transforms cultures. It's happened in our own culture. It's been happening ever since. So the word of God is the great weapon. The teaching of the scriptures in the end is the thing that transforms and sends the kingdom forward. There are four responses to exactly the same word. In verse 15, as you saw, there's ones that there's just no go. It never starts. Lands on the path where people have been walking. The little seed just goes boing, bounces. The little bird seed and comes off they go. So the seed never gets started. It never gets the moisture. It's only there for a moment. And Jesus says there's people like that who although they might for some strange reason put themselves in the position to hear the word of God or they might have been sent to some religious school where they heard it, like it or not, but their hearts were hard. They were like soil that said to the seed, wrap off, we're having nothing to do with you. They had teflon-plated hearts, just split off. And Jesus doesn't say much about the devil, but he says here is the work of Satan to make sure that people do not hear and listen and take in any way seriously that most dangerous weapon that God has sent, which is the seed, the word of the living God. Secondly, are people who, they get going, but in the end, tragically, they have no guts. They start brilliantly. They start quickly, the seed. It starts wonderfully, but dies quickly. These are five-minute wonders. It's probably in the culture of the time, the way it worked was that you had... In much of Palestine you had this sort of line of limestone and three or four inches, nine to twelve centimetres or so of soil. And it would get very thin in some places. So what would happen with the seed would land on it. It would get a little bit of dirt over it, a bit of moisture. And the, the, the soil would get warmed up quite substantially because it was shallow. And it would quickly germinate. And apparently it would most of its energy into going up rather than going down in roots. So this particular one, it grows, it's superficial, it's impulsive, it's exciting, it's wonderful for those around it. If you're a Christian and you had a friend who suddenly heard the gospel and got the wonder, and sort of caught the wonder of it and got excited by it and they're up and running and they're full of joy, as this verse says. But in the end, when hardship comes because of the word, when they begin to get the sneering, the misunderstanding sometimes, the unfair send-ups, feeling a little excluded from key social groups that they'd love to be a part of, when it gets a little hard, either from friends or from family or from faculty members, get some enemies. They quickly wither away. The five minutes is exciting, it looks so good, but it did not endure. Thirdly, and a little bit differently, and I would suggest perhaps even the most relevant of all to many of us in Australia at the moment, 
is the ones with the thorns. These are seeds with an eating disorder but in the end they don't get enough nutrition, they get choked. You know, there's a seed with all the, the nasty, big, powerful weeds and the little thing starts growing and it grows and it, all the nasty weeds are sucking all the nutrients out so it's still there and it's, it hasn't sort of withered and died like the one that died under persecution but it's just never come to the point where it bears fruit where it does the very thing for which it's planted and it just never kind of gets there it dies slowly from malnutrition, choked and lastly, thankfully and optimistically is the seed that falls in good soil and it doesn't just reproduce itself, it reproduces 30, 60, 100 fold it's an abundant harvest so Jesus says there you see the kingdom is moving forward yes there's, there's disappointment, there's frustration, there's false starts but in the end it's moving forward, the seed is bearing its miraculous fruit there are four options and I get the obvious thing if you can just pause with me for a minute and reflect which, which do you think you're perhaps most like? Uh, which soil is the most accurate description of you at the moment? Are you here for some reason but you know in the end you've heard the word of God lots of times and it's had very little real impact on you. You may for some reason come to Christian gatherings but in terms of the word getting deep into you and changing you from the inside and changing you deeply and transforming you in the heart and the mind and the ambition just doesn't do it. Well perhaps you, you've got some sense of how wonderful it is to be caught up in Jesus to be caught up in the kingdom that will last forever to be salt and light in the world to be loved by God you've got a sense of that but still you haven't actually allowed the transforming power of God to go deep into your life so really given enough trouble you may be the sort of person who just withers and dies or perhaps you are like the third one just a little too much going on perhaps to get sufficient nutrition that will last forever or maybe to the goodness of God you can say no I think in God's goodness I'm a little bit more like the last or the word of God getting in I'm really taking it seriously I'm trying to work out how I change in the light of this I'm letting God do his thing in me so there's the four options that I take that we all fall into at uh, various places now there are three traps to avoid here that are quite obvious the first is to, is to be careful of having a hard heart the Bible does speak about the fact that your heart can get hard end you might have a soft heart at one point and then you compromise with sin you do damage to your conscience and slowly your heart is hardened and in the end you can do sins with very little grief that perhaps a year ago you could do only with great pain that your heart has become hardened and callous or perhaps you were just born with a hard heart for some reason the word of God just slides off you might have friends like that, family members who you keep kind of work at why how can they hear this stuff and read that stuff and not be moved? Well here's the answer, this is why this parable is so important it will give you a map to understand the world you live in there are people who can hear exactly the same message one will be completely transformed another will be as if they'd heard the weather report for Singapore and it's like, hmm, that's interesting when I go to Singapore sometime but really of no great consequence for the living here and now in Sydney secondly there are people who are not too hard, they're just too shallow. Uh, these are the ones, as we mentioned, who like to hear it, but it's persecution that brings them undone. And the persecution that we will experience here in Sydney, and you will experience as a Christian, comes in various forms, not often in the blunt, would you in prison sort of form, 
or the shut up or be killed sort of form that many of our brothers and sisters live with. Many of them live with that sort of pressure. We're not living with that here. What you have to put up with here I think in Australia is more subtle and therefore in some ways a little more difficult to get used to. It's just hearing your beliefs are treated with sneering contempt often. If you're like me, a person who reads the Herald and watches the ABC, etc., you get used to hearing Christianity regularly put down. No other religion, it seems to me, gets put down. Islam, spoken of always with respect, always defended right, by the enlightened. Buddhism is, of course, you know, the religion of flavorless, not in any serious way, but in the sort of silly, hypocritical Western way that we use it. All these religions, Aboriginal spirituality, all spoken of with respect. But Christianity, Jesus himself often spoken of with quite open contempt. Uh, misrepresented often, even in the serious media. It will happen, I take it, here in lectures at times. I know it does. The Christianity, the church, Bible-believing people are often portrayed as the most dangerous and the most stupid of people. So it's just the assumption that somehow or other if you're a Christian there's a psychological weakness in you that you'd have to project this father figure into the universe and if you could just grow up to psychological maturity and realise that some years ago we had a scientific revolution actually led by Christians but we'll forget about that you know you, you could just grow up right, and become like your lecturer in some way and it's, it's that sort of uh, put down that you just learn to live with and there's, you can't challenge it every time because in the end you'd, you'd look like as if you were paranoid or something. In fact sometimes it goes even a step further where it's implied that if you believe what Jesus believes there's something morally wrong with you. How can you believe that Jesus Christ is unique? How can you believe that all the other religious leaders aren't just as good as him? Because if you believe that you're either uneducated or you're morally corrupt that you can be such a bigot, such a narrow little person, so condemning of others. And so there's actually a moral put down implicit in the company, which is very hard to put up with if you're a gentle and decent soul. We had some uh, writings in the January holiday with one of the uh, professors here and writing to the Herald and having a slave off of Christians, etc. And it was just a standard thing. Beautiful letter came back from an ex-student of his. Uh, just saying that, that uh, often in his lectures he had to put up with Christianity and the Bible being put down and he thought his professor had showed no knowledge of what he was talking about about Christianity and he said that in our churches science is never put down in the way that you, know, you use your forum at the university to do. And often, sadly, you could try this with your lectures, they won't take the opportunity to debate with a peer. Many of you were here when we had the debates a couple of years ago, both here and at UTS. We could not get any of the well-known lecturers who occasionally have a go at Christianity to debate in public with an academic peer. They're happy to pick on little undergraduates who are often 20 years their younger and two or three degrees behind them, where the power relationship is all wrong because then, Mr. Professor, with your destiny in their hands, they're happy to sneer and have a go. But so many of them have been offered the chance to debate with an equal and they won't take it on even in the nicest and most polite situation. It still hurts. And you might like to challenge your lecture if you're in one of those where that happens. Just ask them politely. Sometimes would you like us to organise a chance where you can debate with an intellectual peer? Or even just one of the EU staff. 
who may not be, you know, have as many PhDs, but could normally hold their ground quite well. I'm just mentioning this because it's kind of hurt sometimes to have that which you believe in, that person who you know died for you, put down and misrepresented. But that is the sort of persecution which at the moment is common enough in our country. In fact, it's hard to avoid. So it's, uh, they're, not, they're not liable to be put to death for it, but it, it can hurt. And in the end, it just becomes unnoble to be associated with that sort of stuff. Uh, a good friend of mine who's now an academic um, was a kid when I first met him, um, 17, so much younger than you. And, um, but I knew when he went to Newsboys University, he came to see me one time and said, uh, you know, I, I want to talk. And I said, oh, yeah, okay. I was the youth minister at the church there and he said, um, he said, I'm feeling really guilty. So I'm thinking it's a sexual thing, okay? Uh, is that normal enough with a young bloke? That'll be the air that he'll take sin somewhat seriously in. So I'm, thankfully I didn't say, I know what it is. Um, <laughs> but I, I actually let him talk. And it was interesting because what, what he was feeling bad about was he said, he said, I had, he was doing medicine. He said, I had this lecture at uni. He said, he's, he's really a classy, urbane sort of guy. He's good fun, he's intelligent, he's well read. And he thinks Christianity is absolute rubbish. He said, and he just puts it down, just okay, in a friendly, sort of, not a nasty, vicious way, but a friendly, sort of dismissive way. And he said, I'm feeling really guilty. I said, why are you feeling guilty? He said, I'm feeling guilty because it's disturbing my faith. He said, and I think it shouldn't. So we had a bit of a discussion anyhow. But he, he had never been in the presence of someone who was admirable and competent and from whom he was learning a lot, who had this sneering contempt for that central part of his belief system. And he, he grew to deal with that quite well. But it's not an uncommon response the first time that you run into it. So there is persecution of various forms. And if, uh, if we've not put our roots deep into the Word of God, and allow the Word of God to deeply change and affect the way that we think, that we understand that that sort of persecution is normal. It's not something shocking if you know the Scriptures. To have Jesus Christ misrepresented is normal. They crucified Him then. That's how the world relates to Jesus. So Jesus says, if they hated me, they'll hate you. Well, let's move on. The third trap to avoid is that of allowing your life to become too busy too crowded. See these people as you can see in verse 18 uh, sown among the thorns the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. This is often the danger of people like us who are so richly blessed. There are so many options that you have in Australia. It's wonderful and at university there's a thousand more options. You can probably learn to tap dance and to do that sort of thing where you have the hats and the, there's all these clubs and you can learn to eat chocolate climb mountains, all sorts of fantastic stuff you can do. And you can finish up so busy doing stuff, filled with just the cares of life, the ordinary business of life, and perhaps pursuing that which will make you very rich one day. And in the end what happens is, I don't think Jesus is saying any of that is necessarily wrong, but he says, there's just too much of it happening. It just crowds out the place of God's word in your life. And it slowly chokes the little plant. So the plant never arrives where the sower intends it to be. And it just slowly, slowly withers away and becomes useless and frustrating to its planter. Friends, I want to suggest it's even possible to do that by being involved in too much Christian stuff. Although I want to encourage you to be deeply involved in the, in the stuff here at EU, you need to be careful you're not so busy with God's stuff that you actually lose touch with God. So busy serving and learning 
that your own relationship with God somehow the suffers. That there isn't time just to read the Word of God, to let it sink deeply into your life, to reflect on it, as the Bible says, to meditate on it, to apply it to your own heart and life. That can be a thing that ultimately chokes the life of God out of you. So it can be climbing mountains and learning to dance, or it can even be sometimes working visually in church stuff. Either way, to have your life so crowded that your life and relationship with God is choked. You will have heard the phrase, the barrenness of a busy life. Many people get so busy that life at heart becomes dry and just a whole lot of activity, feverish activity, which is mistaken for meaningful activity. Hurry, it has been said for years by Christians, is the death of prayer. It's very hard to pray if you're always rushing to give yourself time to slow down. So at times you just need to tear up some of those lovely weeds and give yourself room to live and grow. These are things in the end in these stories of Jesus. These are life and death matters. The plant represents you. And the question is, are you going to live and thrive or are you going to die? Slowly, quietly, just slowly drifting away from the things of God. Slowly less and less involved because there's just not enough nutrition going on. You meet people, uh, this happened to me when I became a Christian, people kept telling me, oh, you'll grow out of being a Christian. My big brother told me he'd had a fling with it. And, uh, you know, often parents will say to their kids, oh, you know, I was teaming with God too and I was at uni, but, you know, you, you grow out of it. Um, what they're really talking about is being choked to death. Uh, let's imagine that if we take, you know, you, you go on, on an annual conference, which would be a, you'd be a shrewd to do that. Imagine you go on an annual conference and you, you, you choke to death. Right? You're playing table tennis with someone and you beat them and they're a little over-competitive and they got your throat and they choked you to death. <laughs> it happened. Was it last year or the year? No. I don't know. If the university chaplain rings up your parents and says, listen, I um, just want to let you know, uh, Mrs. Smith, that your daughter, uh, Billy, <laughs> she, she grew out of life. She just grew out of life. And now she's dead. She just, she just grew out of it. And then she, and yeah, no one says that your parents said, no, 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 she didn't go, she was choked to death. So when people say, like, oh no, you know, I was into it, I grew out of it. No, 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 you were choked to death. That's what Jesus says happens. Plants grow out of it. Nonsense. Well, plants don't grow out of life. That's what Jesus is saying here. People out there to get too busy, too frantic, not enough time to grow to let the Word of God do its thing because everything else, all your energy is being sapped into other areas. And it's worth being ruthless to make sure that you protect the life of God. No one expected Judas to do what he did. When Judas betrayed Jesus, when Jesus mentioned it, that it would happen, the disciples didn't go, hardly Judas, he's such a slack dog. Right? I never trust folks with eyes like that. You know, sort of, they, they, they didn't know. Judas was one of them. Judas went out on the preaching missions. Judas did miracles. Well, God did miracles through him. He was riding up to his ears. But something was dying inside. And in the end, he's famous for walking away from Christ and betraying him. It oughtn't to shock us when this happened. It hurts. It's deeply saddening. But when you meet people who say, I was once, uh, and now I'm not, or perhaps even a friend that you come to uni with from school and they've they were, you were Christians together. Maybe it's happened to friends of mine. Someone who led you to the Lord walks away. What happens to the people that Judas preached to? He's finally talking to them in heaven. You mean, oh, who, who preached to you when you became a Christian? Who, who shared Jesus? Oh, Judas. 
Which Judas? Judas Iscariot. Get out of it. Really? And because that can happen. What Jesus is saying is the Word of God, it'll make progress, it'll change the world as it has. But there'll be great areas of growth at the same time as there's great areas of pain. As some people give up because of lack of courage, either to face the sneer of the family or of other people, while others just slowly get choked to death. There really are only two options. This is a very important parable. This is a VIP. This is a very important parable. Jesus, it's the most important. Because this gives you the map of the world. Right? This is the street directory of how the spiritual world is operating. And you're in the middle of it. That the, the soul is doing his thing and various things are happening. This parable will keep you safe. It'll stop you from being shocked and horrified and amazed. And when the shocking and the horrible and amazing happens, oh, that's what the parable talks about. It's not surprising. It's very saddening. But real power is at work driving the kingdom forward in this opposition. Sadly, the word of God goes out for some and it's a dead end. It gets devoured, scorched to death, or choked to death. Some people's hearts are too hard, too shallow, too busy. Others, on the other hand, can be real live wise in God's kingdom. Not only survive, which is good, but to thrive and to really go forward in God. And the Bible says guard your heart because out of it flow the issues of life. Keep an eye on how your heart's responding to the words of God, to the scriptures, when they're explained to you. And uh, seek to stay soft and supple and open to God, always saying, God, I don't want to just have my head filled, although it's good to have your head filled, for God gave you a head, to have it filled with interesting and important and true thought. But always with a view to living it and applying it to the day-by-day living. And God will... You will bear fruit in your life in terms of your Christ-likeness and character which will grow slowly, frustratingly slowly. And at times if you don't choose it, he'll use you to do wonderful things for other people. Sometimes small background things which are critical. Sometimes once or twice, maybe even spectacularly good things. My wife came to Sydney University and someone gave her a cross that she was wearing uh, in an English tutor. And she'd done a little bit of helping the tutor because they're not always as globally well-educated as you might like. And this guy didn't have the faintest clue about some of the Christian symbolism in some of the English poetry that I was studying. So because she'd become a Christian about a year or so before that, Michelle would occasionally humbly share what that tree was really about. The two trees was the tree in the garden and the tree of the cross. It was just poor. She'd had no clue on it. And so she had this little crossing and this um, guy came up to her after and said, can I talk to you? And um, I know why talk to him but that's okay but he, but he said it was spiritual he, he said um, <laughs> he comes up and, and, and uh, says to her can I talk to you and she said sure I said um, I went and had a cup of coffee and she says, he said that, that cross that you wear do you wear that just for decoration or does that mean something to you and she said no I'm a Christian and it, you know, she spoke about what it meant to her at the time and uh, had conversations and he began to read some stuff that Michelle suggested and he was wonderfully transformed by God and saved and a little while later he rang her up and said that he'd led someone else to Christ. So he said, now you are my spiritual mother and now you are grandmother. <laughs> so, and she wasn't, uh, you know, standing on the desk and saying, shut up and listen to this, I'll tell you about Jesus in my English church. It didn't happen like that for her, you might be led to do that. It was just, it was just, just a question of being there, being genuinely Christian, being open and available to God. Things came up and great things happened. She was alive and thriving and God chose to do that through her and with her. So there are really basically two options. There are four different responses to the, to the 
word, but in the end three of them finish up in the same place which is death. One never got started, two last at a moment, the third got choked slowly. In the end there's only one that thrives and goes on to be whatever God wants it to be. So friends, let me finish with this. You, you have, uh, you've got a fantastic opportunity here. In spite of all the constant fights that go on, and there's no doubt universities are sadly underfunded, it's dumb social policy, but that's what we're doing at the moment. But nonetheless, you are blessed to be at a seriously great university. It's a great place to be. Apart from all the good fun you can have, you might even learn some good stuff as well. Um, I want to say about the EU stuff here, and I don't work for EU and they haven't asked me to say this and they may be a little embarrassed, I don't think I've ever seen a more impressive set of Christian ministries operating anywhere. Now mind you, I haven't seen all that much, I'm fairly... Yeah, very much of a bullbilly really, but, but I've been around a little bit and I've never seen the sort of opportunities provided for a group of people as the EU is now providing for students at Sydney University. Your faith rightly will be challenged at university. So it will be, so it should be. But it will have, you'll have opportunities to grow and to mature both in your godliness of life and character and in your thoughtfulness and your capacity to think with a level of maturity that will match your growing up to this university. And I want to encourage you to take the opportunity to make sure at university you don't allow yourself to drift or to get the word of God to be crowded out as you travel and make money to do whatever you've got to do and all the other stuff you might have to do. To make sure that your commitment is to thrive and survive as a Christian. Nothing else. You walk out of here with 10 university medals and a few PhDs like I did. It's, it is absolute trash if you walk out of here with all that and you've lost your soul. Jesus says, you trade the entire world for your soul and you're a fool. It's a bad deal. Make sure that you survive and thrive. This sort of thing can help. This sort of place and group of Christians can help you to grow and mature, to get your questions answered. I want to, I've rarely been to the more exciting thing than when I've been to annual conference. That thing, you want to just reorganise your entire schedule to be at that. You'll learn at a level that you probably never learned before. Your brain will be stretched and pushed, it's fantastic. You are in a magnificent opportunity to grow and to become more and more effective and more and more joyful in your relationship with God. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to get out of it thinking, boy, I really could have made more of the opportunity. At the same time, you can't be involved in everything. So here's the great parable, Jesus says, the all-important one. It begins and ends with the statement about listening. It's critical that we keep listening to Jesus, getting our roadmap from him, therefore not being surprised and shocked by the things we run into. Next week, we'll look at the uh, reason why Jesus says he came amongst us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this strange story that you tell so simple and yet so expansive in the way that explains to us the world in which we live. We thank you for your word that does come with miraculous power to rebuild us, to remake us, to heal us, to open us up to be loving and like you and even to have a place in working with you and for you in the things that you are seeking to do in our broken and needy world. Uh, we thank you for this time and pray that you would uh, remind us of your word and help us to know how to apply it. We pray this in your name.